we are continuing a series that we are calling strangers living for a better kingdom. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a newsflash, you belong to a better kingdom, an unending and undivided and undefeatable kingdom. And uh, in this series, we are just leaning in and learning what it looks like to live in light of that better kingdom, no matter what it might cost. Because here's the thing we are learning very quickly. Living in light of that better kingdom often clashes with living in light of the kingdom of men. And as we pursue living in light of the better kingdom, we are going to find ourselves feeling strange, looking strange, being strangers in this world. And yet we persist nonetheless. If you have a copy of the Bible, we are going to um, pick up in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse Nine. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, the verses are going to appear on the screen um, here in the room. Um, they're going to appear at the bottom of the screen if you happen to be tuning in remotely. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9. Here is what Jesus says. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. Oh, how completely happy are the peacemakers. For they will be called the children of God. Now, you've got to know that these words would have been as hard... For Jesus' followers to hear in that day and time as they are for us in ours. Blessed are the peacemakers because immediately Jesus used the word peacemakers. It would have brought to mind the people with whom they had the most tension. It would have brought to mind the people from whom they kept the greatest distance. And oh, how completely happy are you when you make peace with them. And I suspect that for this group of followers of Jesus who were um, primarily Jewish. Um, they would have immediately thought about peace in a cultural sense, more than they would have thought about it in a, a personal sense. They would have thought about cultural groups of people more than they would have thought about individual lists and names of people in their particular spheres. Um, they lived in a cultural atmosphere much like Ours, in the sense that it was marked by some pretty intense religious and political and racial division and tension. They lived in a deeply fractured and fragmented world with these, as we often call, thick battle lines between people groups who just didn't like each other. So when Jesus says, my followers are makers of peace, 
they would have naturally thought about the people in their culture with whom they did not get along. They would have thought about people in their cultural context who they would have considered the enemy. People in their context, they would have considered the them because there's us and then there is them. They would have thought about people who they felt some level of disdain or disgust towards. Jesus, you can't be talking about the Gentiles. You cannot possibly be saying, be peacemakers with the the Gentiles. Because the Jews who were listening to Jesus would have considered the Gentiles the them. The enemy. A group of people that they were taught from childhood to disdain and keep at a Distance, Because after all, the Jews, the, 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 the nation of Israel, were God's chosen people. They were the people group that God chose uh, to, to give his promises and his privileges to. Um, this was a group of people that God had invited to introduce an everlasting kingdom through. The Jews... Um, this was a group of people that God said, I'm going to establish a kingdom through y'all. And I'm going to establish an everlasting king through you all. You are my chosen people. The Gentiles, therefore, were any religious or racial group around them that did not have Jewish blood running through their veins. Because the Gentiles... They were the unchosen. They were the unspecial. They were the ordinary. They were the rejected by God. They were the them in their minds. Denied the promises. Denied the privileges of the kingdom. Matter of fact, this thought started to evolve until it got to this place where it became, well, God hates them. They are God's enemies, and therefore if God hates the Gentiles, we must hate them too. So surely, Jesus, you are not talking about making peace with them. We've been taught from childhood to draw thick emotional and relational battle lines to keep them at a distance. They don't belong to you, God, and therefore they cannot belong among us. I mean, they're rejected by you, so therefore they must be rejected by us as well. If you've kept them on the outside, then we must keep them on the outside as well. Come to think of it, they're not safe. If you, God, are going to one day judge them and destroy them and we get a little too close to them, we might get spiritually contaminated by them and we might get destroyed with them. So we've got to definitely draw lines and keep a distance with those people who you've not chosen because they're not special. The them. Surely Jesus can't mean make peace 
with them. And yet, I suspect that's who would have jumped to mind. The Gentiles. And worse of all, the Roman Gentiles. Those people in political power over us with their oppressive thumb. Squeezing us for tax money. Silencing and muting our voices in the arenas that matter the most, those Gentiles. Surely you can't be talking about them. Jews had a deep disdain for the Gentiles and were committed to the safety of keeping them at a distance. I mean, frankly, they wish they would just disappear. But at best, let's just keep them at a distance. And to be fair, as tends to happen, the Gentiles, the feelings were all too mutual. They did not like the Jews. Those snooty-nosed, self-righteous elitists who just walk around with this air of superiority. They just feel they are better than the rest of us. We are God's special chosen people. We can't stand them. It's not even like they have any ounce of clout or influence that matters in this cultural context and yet they feel like they're special not letting their little kids play with our little kids. We don't like the Jews. They lived In a culture of tension, the disciples would have heard Jesus' words and they would have likely pictured the cultural enemies, the Jews and the Gentiles. They would have thought, Gentiles, the them, the enemy. You can't mean them. But come on, if you've spent any time in this conversation about the kingdom, you know where this is going. Jesus says, yep, that's exactly who I mean. Make peace with the them. The Gentiles, the Roman government powers that be. Because that's what my people do. Because that's what it means to live in light of my kingdom. It would have been as hard for them to hear in that cultural context as it is for us. In my kingdom, oh how completely happy are you when you clear The path to friendship with the people you naturally disdain and want to keep your distance from them. That's who I'm talking about. Oh, how completely happy in my kingdom are you when you clear the path to friendship with those people that you even might pray that I would help you make disappear. But at best, you want to keep your distance from. This would have shook them just like it shakes us, if we are honest. Because Jesus would say the exact same thing to us. Is there anyone in your world that you consider them? 
the, the them, the enemy. Now, if we're rolling in Christian circles, we may not use the word the enemy, but come on. Is there anyone in your world who stirs in you a feeling of disdain or disgust? And if you were honest, you wouldn't mind if they disappeared. But at best, you are going to keep your distance. You are going to draw some emotional and relational battle lines to keep them out. And you have a verse to justify it. Is there anyone in your world who stirs feeling of disdain? Those people. Then Jesus would say, if you belong to me and you are my follower, you are going to identify who those people are and you are going to start to make a way. Towards friendship. You are going to start to clear the path. Towards making friendship possible. With the them. That's what my people do. Always. And man if we're honest with each other. Which what better place for it than right here in church. It should not be too hard for us to identify who Jesus might speak of if he were standing physically in this room. Now, it's different for the different ones of us. But I don't think it's complicated for us to figure out who are the them in my world. And you're going to notice this idea of peacemaker is not a clear the path for friendship with everybody in the world. It's specifically for the people you think about as the them, the people who stir disdain and maybe disgust that you've maybe kept at a distance. Those are the people Jesus would say them. Who are those people? In your world. Because man we live in a cultural time. That has mastered the art of sides. We have near perfected the art. Of drawing thick. Emotional. Relational. Battle lines. To identify the us. And the them. We've become really good. At deciding who belongs. And who doesn't. Who's safe. And who isn't. Who God loves and who he doesn't. And whose side God is on and whose side he is clearly vacated. I wonder who Jesus would want to bring to mind in your world. If you're not sure, let me try and help. That's what I'm here for. Or for some of us to trigger you to feel that feeling of disdain, I just have to say, uh, me too. Me too? How about men too? How about that? Easy. I'm just trying to help. If I see one more Black Lives Matter sticker on a 
are those thugs and looters? Oh, thugs and looters. Yep. How about blue lives matter? Blue lives. That corrupt bunch of profilers. What? Why? Time out. Why can't we all just get along? All lives matter. Of course you would say all lives matter. That's the perk of the privileged. The privileged? How dare you? I'm just trying to help. Capitol Hill domestic terrorists. Oh, seriously? That's what you're going to call them? That's what you're going to call the patriots? Patriots? Yeah. Can we talk about the election thieves? Seriously, you believe that? Are you some kind of a conspiracy theorist? Conspiracy theorists? I hate conspiracy theorists. Well, just the whole government. Just the whole thing. Just all of them. Just, Lord, please, make them disappear. (laughs) Mask mandating government overreachers. Sheep. That's a trigger point, a sheep. The mindless followers who just go along without asking any questions. The them, those sheep, just stirs mm, feelings of disdain. The vaccine peddlers. Go ahead and in. Inject the mark of the beast in your body. How can you sit up there and and say that? So are you saying, are you suggesting, no, I'm just trying to help. That's my only job right now. LeBron James. (laughs) Not Michael Jordan, whatever. Everyone's wrong. It's Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. I'm just saying it doesn't take more than a word to trigger feelings of disdain. And even in that short period of time, I'm sure somebody felt something. Somebody may may even be feeling a certain way towards me now because I didn't. Well, you didn't say that, though. Well, whatever that thing that's annoying you, that may be your then. Which means I'm doing such a good job helping. It doesn't take too much to trigger feelings of disdain. To reveal the them that we believe the world would just be better off without. I mean, if they just knew how wrong they are, can they not see how blind they are? Who in their right mind could possibly, and we are fired up. Ah, I can't. Distance, division, battle lines drawn. And the funky thing of it, 
is some of the them are sitting a few rows in front of you. They're in this room. Because come on, if anyone in this room seriously can honestly believe, I just can't. I just can't. And Jesus would say, yep. Wherever you felt the disdain, whatever category or group of people have become the them, that's who I'm talking about. Oh, how completely happy in my kingdom are you when you start to figure out ways to clear the path towards friendship with them. That's what my people do. Matthew 5 verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. My followers will constantly be finding places of tension and distance and disdain. And then finding ways to clear the path in those places towards friendship. What does that even look like? Now it's interesting, Jesus doesn't say much. It's almost like, go figure it out. But if you keep reading, by the way, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts to tease some of this out. Yeah, you like the people you get along with and agree with. Sure, anybody can do that. But my people, it's what you do with your enemies. Yeah, I know it's been said. Well, they did this, so they deserve this. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But that's not what my people do. Later on, Jesus talks a little bit more about the fact that in his kingdom, it's upside down, y'all. There is something very different about the way his followers treat the people who naturally trigger disdain and trigger disgust and we naturally want to keep a distance from. That is a marker of your followership of Jesus. But man, I'll tell you, Paul addresses this in Ephesians chapter 2. And I think he gives some really practical helps for how we can start to take maybe baby steps in the direction of living in light of this better kingdom when it comes to being peacemakers. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn to Ephesians 2. Again, the verses will appear on whichever screen you happen to be looking at right now. This is what he says in verse 11. And again, he's speaking into a context where it's Jew versus Gentile. Us versus them. Distance and disdain. He says, therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision." Which is done in the body by human hands. Um, One of the things that God asked uh, the Jews, his people to do, um, was to circumcise every boy at eight days of age. And um, that 
Circumcision became a physical symbol of this special relationship to God. One of the distinguishing markers that set Jews apart from all other unspecial, unchosen people was circumcision. Um, So, for the Jews, the term uncircumcised was weaponized. It became one of the most disparaging and offensive terms that they could use to speak about or to speak to a Gentile. Anyone who was non-Jewish. Uncircumcised. Man, I'll tell you what. We were mean in school growing up. But I don't remember anyone ever throwing this one around. It would not have done much, but in their context, it was laced with deep disdain, a deeply offensive term. Uncircumcised became this this label um, for all those lesser people around them. The people God hated, uncircumcised. The people God hadn't chosen, uncircumcised. The the, the people that God had excluded, uncircumcised. They don't belong to you. You have no place in God's kingdom and his promises. Uncircumcised. Your spiritual rejects and outsiders uncircumcised wouldn't mind if you disappeared but we're definitely going to keep our distance uncircumcised what this term did was it reduced our whole group of people to a single label We have no interest in knowing your story. We have no interest in knowing your pain. We have no interest in knowing your fears. We have no interest in knowing your dreams. We have no interest in knowing your disappointment. You are just the uncircumcised. Just this label. Becoming peacemakers... I think Paul and Jesus would agree. It means losing the labels. To clear this path towards friendship with people that you may feel feelings of disdain for means learning to lose the labels. It's a commitment to never using disparaging labels to speak to or to speak about in their absence. That group of people. If you have any idea that that there's a term or this this label is designed to, to be disparaging. Or to make that group of people seem lesser. Or just how could they? And they just don't think really well. Or to create distance. That term or that label has to go. 
lose the labels. Now, by the way, we can become uber, uber, uber legalistic about this. <laughs> no, do not use that word to describe people in a way that is derogatory or keeps them at a distance or categorizes them negatively. <laughs> because it's really interesting. The words we often use to label people are words that actually have an appropriate meaning. There's most of the time there's a context in which that word is appropriate, like uncircumcised. That, that's fine in the doctor's office. Uncircumcised. That's going to be fine at lunch when you have to explain what that is to your kids. Uncircumcised. You realize there's actually appropriate use for the word sheep. Matter of fact, it's a word Jesus uses to talk about his people. But it's now been weaponized and it's used to describe this thoughtless group of people who just go along. So please hear me. I'm not saying stop using that word. I'm saying stop using the label in any way that's designed to keep distance. Or to identify a group that you or the people around you feel some level of disdain for. Those libs. Nationalists. Those words, by the way, liberal, nationalist, those have meaning. Terrorists. They are actually terrorists in this world. The gays. You know, they're actually gay people. White privilege. There are actually white people who have privileges. And black people who have privileges. <laughs> I'm telling you. We've become so comfortable doing this. Using labels in the church. To negatively define or categorize groups of people. That we are just not fans of. And just like the Jews, we believe we have verses to justify it. Well, God, clearly, the book of Leviticus, he hates um, whatchamacallit. So clearly, it's okay for me to therefore. Hmm. But once I choose to use labels in that way, you are no longer a person. You're just a problem. I don't have to know your struggles. I don't have to know your pain. I don't have to know your story. I don't have to know your journey. You're just the insert label here. But the path to friendship is paved with stories, y'all. Tell me about you. Where are you from? How did this, how did you get here? <laughs> What's your journey been? There's no way to maintain labels and pave the path to friendship. Especially when you don't know a single story 
of a person whose label you often throw around. The gays. Right, and when you sat with your gay friend, what did they say? I don't have one. Hmm. I wonder who you may have labeled. What people group you've become content to keep at a distance using those words. But I'm telling you, show me a culture of tension and division and I'll show you a culture of labels. We just use them a lot. I think this whole journey of being peacemakers is going to require us keeping each other accountable because I think as the church starts to keep each other accountable in this regard, I think we're going to start to experience a little more clearing of the path. For us to be willing to say to somebody else, man, I can't laugh at that anymore. Because those words are designed to perpetuate the us and them, to perpetuate distance, to perpetuate division. I wonder what labels Jesus may want you. To lay aside. Verse 12 of Ephesians 2. Remember that at that time. You were separate from. Christ. Remember that at that time. You were separate from Christ. Excluded from citizenship in Israel. And foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope. And without God. In this world. Man, I read that and I was stirred. See, because that's the thing about labels. Um, they, they distance us from each other. And, and the devil uses them to help us to forget there's only one label that ultimately matters in the grand scheme of things. Saved or unsaved. Saved or unsaved. Paul says no matter what labels y'all used. You know to, to describe each other. Or whatever labels were used to describe you. You were separate from Jesus. You were without hope and without God in this world. That was the greatest problem, the ultimate crisis. The Jews had become so obsessed with this foreskin label that they lost sight of the fact that the Gentiles were hopeless. They were headed towards ultimate destruction. And Paul reminds them of that. I'm telling you, church, if we are going to be peacemakers the way Jesus invites us to, we're going to need to return to a place of being concerned with what matters most. We're going to have to remember what matters most. There is a famine of what matters most in the church. Saved or not saved. 
Hell or heaven, light or darkness, life or death. Paul says that's really what mattered more than anything else. What is that person or that group's status with Jesus Christ? Because if they're separated from Jesus, they're going to hell. If you can somehow get them to be less gay, to become more acceptable to you, they are still going to hell. If you can get them to somehow change their vote and vote the way you vote, they are still going to hell. If you can somehow find whoever may have stolen the election and make that right and they don't, they are still going to hell. Paul is saying, get your priorities right, your life and death, saved or unsaved. You can fix the whole pronouns thing if you want. Get people to stop riding, figure out the mask mandates, whatever. But if they don't know Jesus, everyone might become pro-life, but if they don't know Jesus, clearing this path to friendship starts with prioritizing people's souls. I think the devil is using the labels to keep us from being close enough to care or to even know what this spiritual standing is. It doesn't matter anymore to us. Saved or not saved. And and I'm praying God break our hearts for what ultimately breaks yours when it comes to people, compassion for people's souls over concern for their stance. About whatever the issue is. And what I'll see is man. I can't stand at a distance from you. When I become concerned about your distance from Jesus. When that matters the most to me. Think about what in the world am I going to say. "Mm, I'm keeping my distance from you. When your soul starts to matter to me again. I will run through a wall. To make peace. If there's anyone, any group of people whose salvation you don't even care to see, you will never be a peacemaker. You won't. Because whatever issue you have with them is always going to be more important. And I guarantee you that issue is not going to determine their ultimate eternal destiny. Life or death. Saved or not. The church must return to its heart priority when it comes to people. What matters the most? I know I need to repent of being more angry than I am compassionate. We have to return to what matters most. Paul goes on, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, distance, have been brought near (laughs) by the blood of Christ. I love that. You used to be separate from Christ. But God was not content to stand at a distance. 
So in Jesus, he crossed the battle line, invaded our world, and it came near. The gospel is beautiful. Lord, return us to this message. In fact, the only person who had reason to be standoffish became like one of the them. That's crazy. Jesus became a human being so that he could learn our stories, so that he could live our stories. So he could feel our pain. Until on the cross, his story became our pain. Until on the cross, Jesus absorbed every label that was slapped on us. Taking it on himself, rejected, unwanted, condemned. Jesus said, I'll take that. And in doing that, he himself became separated from God so that we could be brought near. And through his blood, he blotted out this battle line that sin had drawn and brought us back. Now distance is gone. Now separation is gone. That's the story of the gospel. If you're a follower of Jesus, it should be a no-brainer how we should then turn around and interact with other people. But the one thing I I, I think emerges from this verse here is we ought to make the first move. We ought to make the move. I love the language of God's initiative that he brought us near while we were far off. He was not content with distance. That's powerful. I think being a peacemaker means making the first move to close that distance with people you might naturally disdain. With people, our culture is going to work super hard to pit us against. With the people, we might be tempted to label. Make the move. Make the first move. It's what Jesus did see because here's the way I function when it comes to peace. Like, oh no, I'm I'm open to peace. I mean, if, if they will change, all I'm saying, I don't ask much. I'm just saying if they would if they would adjust their vote or their ideology and agree with me, I don't want trouble. I want peace. They're the problem. If they would just apologize for what they did first and grovel a little bit, I'm here waiting. (laughs) And God is like, "Mm, it's not what I did. You didn't apologize to me for anything before I came after you. Make the move. But that's what the church is saying. We're just waiting for those people to change and to get this right and to make those adjustments. And then, (laughs) oh man. What are you waiting for them to first do? No, go after them. In the midst of the differences, in the midst of that feeling of disdain, go after them. While the distance lives, go after them and figure out what does it look like for me to clear the path.
and make the move to close the distance. In the midst of that conspiracy theory or that crazy political view, I'm coming after you. In the midst of your unbiblical belief, you believe something that is anti-biblical and I'm coming after you. Whoa, no, 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 no. Hang on a second. But if they disagree with God, what? You disagreed with God when he came after you. Secondly, if you're a parent, my little pagan children disagree with God all the time. I've never kicked them out of the house. Or said, when you learn to, then I will. No, I come after their little pagan butts, hug them all the time. So for us to act like, man, what's standing in the way is they just don't believe what we believe. Since when? Now make the move. Jesus says, oh, how completely happy are the peacemakers. I find that compelling. He doesn't say the peace responders. He doesn't say the peace waiters. Peacemakers. We are wagers of peace. We are looking for an excuse to wage peace. Just show me where tension lives. And distance and division. And like God, I want to make the move. Verse 14, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Who has made the two groups one. Watch what his agenda is. He's made the two, us and them, One, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. We'll come back to that. But in the meantime, Jesus is our peace. It's such a powerful statement, especially when it comes to the church. If you have believed in the person of Jesus and I have believed in the person of Jesus, guess what? He is our peace. That is powerful. Jesus has now become the meeting place for the two of us. Woo! I don't need you to agree with me politically because Jesus is the meeting place. He's our peace. I don't need you to see things the way I see things because Jesus is our peace. We have got that so twisted and we've kept people at a distance. Why are you at a distance with that other person in the church? Well, because of this and this and this. But is Jesus? Yeah. So then as long as he lives, you have every cause to embrace each other and experience peace. And friendship. This is such a powerful phrase that I think the church needs to return to over and over again. You are crazy. But thankfully for you, Jesus is our peace. So as long as he lives, we can have peace no matter what else we disagree about. Doesn't mean you want to be BFFs. Doesn't mean I'll trust you to mentor my kids. Because you are crazy. There is such a thing. But man, I can pave the way towards friendship and embrace. Because Jesus... Is our peace. We don't have to wait until we agree. We don't have to wait until our skin looks the same color. There's not enough bleach or tanning beds for that to happen. But Jesus is our peace. 
I fear that when the church beefs, especially within its own ranks, it makes this declaration that Jesus failed. Like, no, he's not really our peace. Jesus is like, I'm your peace. No, you're not. Party is our peace. Like, no, I'm your peace. No, no, no. Theological agreement is no. Well, what church I go? No, I'm your peace. Everything else is a lie. But Paul doubles down on that idea by saying he did this by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. I love that. Out of the two. Out of the us and them, Jesus' goal on the cross was to create one new family. One new blood race. In case there's any doubt about what he is after. Jesus is not just after us tolerating each other. That is the lie of the enemy. When we start to talk like, well, listen, I don't have a problem with them. That's great, but that's not the goal. If there was tension and division and drama, Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I came to make one new humanity. I came to bring them so close together in embrace that they become one new blood race. I love how far Jesus wants to push peace. This is beautiful. He died to create oneness and unity and embrace. When we talk about clearing the path towards friendship, that's just the beginning. He ultimately wants oneness. And until I'm willing to embrace the person that I stood at a distance from, I'm not yet living the dream of the cross. A blood race. One family. When I stand at a distance from people, I am standing at a distance from the dream of the cross. I came to make one new humanity. And I love what it said in verse 14. Jesus didn't just come to remove every obstacle and barrier that kept us at an emotional relational distance from God. No, he brought down every wall, the dividing wall of hostility. That kept us at emotional and relational distances from each other. I love that. On the cross, Jesus waged a vicious war against everything that stood between us and God. And he waged a vicious war against everything that stood between me and you. Us and them. And he won. It says he destroyed the wall. He destroyed the obstacle. He cleared the path. If that's true, then I think being peacemakers means, I didn't know how else to say it. We need to learn to just crush the bricks. Jesus has destroyed everything that stood between us embracing and having peace. Which means the only way The only way there is something in the path of me embracing somebody, particularly in the church, is if I put it back up. If I build it again. Because that obstacle is a lie. Jesus says, I've I've cleared the way for you all to be one new humanity. 
certainly I've cleared the way for you to be able to have meaningful relationship with somebody. Now, I'm, there are going to be friendships which are not safe to, to have like close proximity. I get that. That's not the point. But man, for me to step through disdain and to clear the, the way of, of the obstacles that kept us apart, that is always going to be a possibility because of what Jesus has done. The only barriers that keep us from embracing each other's stories and each other's pain are the ones that we dig back up. Peacemakers figure out what is this disdain? What is this distance? What is standing between us? And we've got to kick those bricks down because Jesus brought down the wall of hostility. And if Jesus is our peace, then man, his followers, are going to be committed to paving that path. And the craziest thing is the minute I start to move <laughs> to clear the path to friendship, I am going to find in the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus already did it. And he is with me in that process. Peacemakers kick bricks down. If you claim the blood of Jesus has brought you near to God, you cannot stand at a distance from someone else who's been brought near. You can't do it. Because the cross accomplishes either both or neither. You cannot simply believe in a vertical cross. Me and God are good. No, if you and God are good, then Jesus is also you and other people. It's both. Jesus is calling us, hey, be a peacemaker, because I came to make that entirely possible. And if somebody doesn't believe in Jesus and is separate from God, okay, let that be the most important thing, that they don't know Jesus. So treat them the way Jesus treated you when you were separate from God. All of this stuff, well, they're not a believer, so I've got to obviously, you know... um, I've got to keep them, you know, in, in this place of like disdain or, or, or great distance. Well, what did Jesus do with us? No, we still want to clear the path and move towards them so that we can invite them to the ultimate peace in the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Man, I read that again and I loved it because it made so much sense. <laughs> that as we clear the path towards friendship and as we start to prioritize people's souls, as we start to lose company with the labels, I'm telling you, you know what's going to happen? People will be like, you peaceful, you your daddy's son. Y'all look so much like your father. You look so much like your dad. There's no other way to explain it because what you were doing with people who are at a distance and people you might have some tension with is exactly what your dad did in the person of Jesus Christ with you all. You must be children of God. You must be. And I just cannot help but wonder, is that what the culture around us is saying about the church right now? Are you God's kids? Look at you. Always finding an excuse to wage peace with your roommate. 
always finding a way to, to clear the obstacles that Jesus already knocked down. Look at y'all. You shut down the labels that are used in disparaging ways about other people. Y'all must be God's kids. Well, but if we move towards peace with people, it's scary and it could cost us this. Well, look at you moving and paying a high price just the way your father did. Pay the highest price, the blood of his own son to bring y'all near. You must be your daddy's kids. I don't know about you, but that's what I want to be accused of in heaven and on earth. Jesus says, oh, how completely happy are my followers who are marked By making peace, making the move towards peace with people, especially the people they become aware there is tension and distance and disdain towards. I don't know who that is for you, but spirit of the living God, I pray that you not allow us to rest and keep resting in places of division and distance, especially in your church. May you purge your church of division. And may you stir in us a fresh courage and a fresh love and a fresh glimpse of your gospel that just drives us to want to knock down every brick and obstacle that stands in the way. So that we can live the dream of the cross in embracing People, especially people unlike us, and especially people we don't necessarily agree with. Help us to live the miracle of Calvary in our church. And may that trickle outside the walls and doors of the church into the streets. May we love those who don't know you. Not asking them to change anything first. (laughs) but inviting them to the one who died for us while we were still sinners. And may it be said of us, we are God's kids. And in the midst of all of this, may we start to experience the heavenly, holy happiness that we cannot explain because we are living in light of your kingdom. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen.